0: And don't say, oh, that sounds hard or that must be frustrating if it's just lip service because we can tell. Like, you, t- like, it's the yeah. phone, it's the delivery. If you don't mean it, you have the ability to help me put my dukes all the way up or all the way down, and I can tell by your sincerity and your word choice.
1: Hello, you are listening to The Rare Life. I'm your host, Madeline Cheney. And today we have my good friend, Tiffany Goodchild, sharing five surprising things parents want special education professionals to know. And really quick disclaimer, in the U.S., it is largely known as special education, which I think a lot of us are hoping they change at some point soon. I know in other countries it's known as accessible education, inclusive education, or disability education, which are all better titles for this. Anyway, I diverge. These are all the same. So if you're an international listener, that is what we're referring to. Tiffany is the perfect guest for this episode because she's been on both sides of the table with this. Before her disabled six-year-old Carter was born, she worked in the special education system for 10 years, both as a school psychologist and later as a principal at a school exclusively for disabled kids. And she often let out on some of the trickiest IEPs with families. And as highly trained and experienced as she was in that field, there are a ton of things that she wishes she would have known and implemented in the way that she approached her work with families. So to the parents listening, two things. First of all, although this is directed towards special education professionals, I really hope that you feel seen and validated during this episode. I think you just might see yourself in a lot of the things we talk about. And secondly, we hope that if you agree with the sentiments shared, that you help us get this episode out there by sharing it with the IEP and special education professionals within your reach. We have an electronic flyer that can be emailed out to an email list, and we have a paper flyer that can be printed off and distributed at places like disability-specific schools, et cetera. They both have information about this episode specifically. There are PDFs that can be printed out or emailed out on the website, therarelifepodcast.com, and there's a link in the show notes for that. And now to the professionals listening, an extra special welcome. We are so glad that you're here. We know that if you're listening, you're the cream of the crop because it shows how much you care about what you do and about families like ours. As I listened through to this episode, I realized it might come across as like kind of aggressive on my part, But that was definitely not the intention. We love you guys so much, and we're so grateful for all you do for our children and our families. So, so grateful. So I hope that you remember that throughout the episode and really feel that from us. Okay, a little more about Tiffany. You already know her professional background, but what else? She and her husband have four children, Maddie, who is eight, Carter, who is six, Gabby, who is five, and Sammy, who is a year and a half. Inspired by her experiences with Carter, Tiffany started a nonprofit called Courageous Carter, which they used to fund various mission projects for the benefit of kids with neurological disabilities, and one of which they named the Race for Robot Legs. They raised enough funds to gift a set of robot legs made by Trexo Robotics to a little boy named Alex, which is not an inexpensive endeavor. And they plan to do it again and again every year. So why is this something that's so important to them? In her words. Hi, my name is Tiffany and my son Carter suffered an unexpected
0: brain injury at birth, resulting in a severe form of spastic quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Carter will never walk independently, but thanks to technology, he's able to get thousands of steps in every single day. Carter has been a Trexo user since he was three years old, and since that time, he uses this medical technology to walk right at home and in his community. We have seen so many health benefits from the use of the Trexo, including better head control, better trunk control, improved GI health, neuromuscular health, and social benefits. It's honestly really powerful to see him taking steps in this technology side by side his siblings and his peers. We use this technology not because we think it's the tool that's going to help Carter walk independently, but because he never will. And every single child that could benefit from this technology deserves to have it.
1: I love it so much. If you want to learn more about Trexo's robot legs and how you can start the process of getting one for your child, check out their website, trexorobotics.com. That's spelled T R E X O robotics.com. And if it's easier, you can just click the link in the show notes to go to that website. We also have a link in the show notes to their social media, which is great for watching videos of kids using these robot legs to kind of be able to conceptualize what they are and how awesome they are. It is very cool. A huge thank you to Trexo for sponsoring this episode. We love you. Okay. Tiffany is a lover of her children and of getting deep tissue massages. Let's dive in. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to the show.
0: Hi, Madeline. I'm so excited to be on here. Thank you for having me.
1: Yes, I'm so excited to have you. I really appreciate that you are willing to talk about your perspective because I think that sometimes, and we'll talk about this more, but it feels like there is kind of like this defensive energy that we have as parents going into these meetings. And so I think it's great. You understand both sides of this. And so it can be really, you know, just a really open and honest conversation about like what we as parents would love educators to understand about this side of the table. And so that's why, you know, the point of this episode really is we really do want educators in that realm to understand where we're coming from. And I think you're the perfect voice for that. And, you know, obviously, we also hope that families listening. That are affected by disability also feel that solidarity of like ah yes you know you phrased it just perfectly that's how i felt you know so let's dive right in and talk about that defensive mama bear energy that we so often bring to these iep meetings and the eligibility meetings and let's share kind of why because you know you mentioned before that a lot of times as an educator, you noticed that energy of like, wow, they're the difficult family or like, wow, she's really on the defense. And now understanding like, oh, okay, now I can see like, why? Let's dissect that a little bit. It's so true
0: because just being a parent and being that role at the table for me was so humbling because oftentimes, you know, especially as I got further along in my career, I was the one that was facilitating really challenging IEP meetings and working with people who either brought, representatives or advocates with them and we're just really challenging the school and so you know just reflecting about my practice I mean they're absolutely we're parents and I just, I'm going to be open and transparent because this is my reality. I'm not saying all schools and professionals were like this, but we as professionals, we know which parents know their stuff. We know which parents are going to come, you know, with their dukes up. And I think as schools, you know, we would have to make sure that we really kind of had our stuff together too. And, you know, our stance and our data and right or wrong. I think sometimes, you know, when the school's proposing one thing, parents want another You don't mean to, but you both kind of go in there almost pitted against each other. And instead of that, we really should be working together, you know, and towards an outcome, you know, because everybody wants what's best for the student. But I think for me, now that this whole thing has been flipped upside down, I understand it now in a way that I never did. I mean, what I wish those professionals or I as a professional knew and understood in a more comprehensive way is just how much advocacy this life requires and it's not just within school services I mean the moment Carter was born medical services I mean to the point where I'm literally advocating to let my child live okay I mean like that was my reality I mean because people wanted me to let him just starve to death and pass away and it finally took me a little bit to get out of my grief fog you know I realized listen to your instincts Tiff like your kid wants to live help him But I had to advocate to find a medical team that valued his life and wanted to help me with that. And then there's county services and there's insurance. And then there's all of these other specialists because the diagnosis is just the beginning, right? After that, all of the complexities come along with it. And so, holy smokes, the amount of advocacy that it takes even just to get basic things, medications, equipment, all of those things. As a school professional, I had no idea how parents live, you know, and they're not just trying to just check things off a list. Like they're trying to have quality of life for their family. Right. And these things are necessary for quality of life. And so just to have to fight for that all the time. So yeah, another IEP meeting and parents are coming in and they're used to having to fight and defend and justify. So instead of having like this open dialogue and sitting around the table and like, knowing that we're on the same side and we want to work together towards an outcome parents come in it's me against you and i want to win mm-hmm. you know and i've had friends yeah. that have gone into IEP meetings that i kind of help coach in behind the scenes a little bit and they're like yay we won you know and it's like it shouldn't be a fight like it shouldn't be like it's not a winner and a loser we should be working yeah. together and as a former professional i just i did not understand the level of advocacy and fight that parents live every single day, just to get basic things that their kids and their families need.
1: Yeah. And I think like, also what I would add to that is, and you've implied this, but like that, that type of advocacy that a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us are kind of faced with like from day one, sometimes even before our child is born, if you have a prenatal diagnosis, like that type of advocacy is quite traumatic, If you picture, you know, putting yourself in our shoes of like, wow, what would that feel like to have to fight for my child to live? Like that's such a basic thing to have to fight for. And so there's a lot of trauma there. Well,
0: and one thing that I have really unpacked, I think I really appreciate you bringing that up because trauma teaches you to defend and protect, right? Mm. And that is a trauma response. And so when you go into these meetings and you're requesting something and you feel resistance from the other side that trauma response just kicks in. I mean, I would sit in these meetings when Carter was even in early childhood, and we're not even talking about anything that's like life or death or anything truly that significant, but I can feel myself becoming defensive and tense. And I've had to unpack a lot of that, but a hundred percent, it's a trauma response. And I don't think professionals I know there's been trauma-informed training that some schools have done, but I don't think that a lot of the professionals that interact with families on a day-to-day basis understand that trauma piece. And I think in order to be more effective working with these families, you know, I think having that understanding would be just so powerful because I didn't get it. I did not get it at all. I'd like to think I was empathetic. I feel like that's always been a gift of mine, empathy, but there's no way that I understood even a sliver of what parents went through. And so I think back to some of the meetings that I was at, I did, I thought these parents were difficult. I thought they were unreasonable. And I like want to go back and like, there's a couple that I'm thinking of right now that I was going to hug and say, I'm so sorry, I was wrong. You know, I didn't get it. And I understand why you came in that way, you know? And so I just think that trauma piece is just, it has a bigger play than anybody really realizes.
1: Yeah. When I think that like, I'm just picturing, you know, as professionals listening to this and like, I think just integrating that compassion and really just being like, okay, like that's really sucky, you know, like just to like kind of sit with that and like picture what that would be like to have that trauma in our past and having that kind of be brought up in these meetings that aren't you know, a lot of the time there's nothing like life-threatening about like what services we're advocating for, but we go into that mode. Like our body feels all those memories. And I think having that compassion to say like, okay, that sucks. And then like if you picture going into a conversation with any person like that you have a relationship with and you want to just be right, you are not going to have the best outcomes. But if you go into the conversation with compassion and like empathy, and like, hey, let me see where you're coming from. Okay, I can kind of picture what that might feel like. And wow, you are probably being triggered right now from past trauma. And so I can be like, just come from more of a compassionate side. I think that could do worlds. Of good as far as making sure that the conversation, instead of like who's right and who's wrong and who's going to win, and more of like how can we figure out the best solution for the school district and for the child.
0: Well, and it's just like like you said, having an open mind so that effective communication can occur. But in order for parents Mm -hmm. to put their nukes down, they need to feel that you see them in at least a sliver of that. You know, I think for me, what I always say to people, if I know someone's a parent, like a mom. They have a level of understanding as another parent, like parent to parent, where I feel like it makes them more effective, you know, because they can see that piece of me. And so I think just good conflict resolution skills, right, just is Mm -hmm. having an open mind. And I think one thing for parents to kind of understand, like on the flip side, special education, like the workload that we have, it's crazy. There's so many just timelines, you know, there's so many rules and regulations that you have to follow. And I think as a professional, it's really easy to get overwhelmed because you're trying to teach, you're trying to put these services in place and make them effective, but you're also trying to be compliant and you're trying to get your evals done and you're trying to get your IEPs written and you just, it becomes a thing to check off your to-do list. And what I think professionals sometimes forget because they don't always have the capacity and the time and space to really dive deeper into those things, they're just trying to rush through to get it so that they don't get in trouble with their timeline. That The piece of the child and the story behind the child and the family, it kind of gets lost. And so I think that's, for me, as somebody that, if I would ever go back to work, like, oh my gosh, just diving in a little bit deeper, instead of just sending parent interview forms home, you know, because I get triggered as a parent now. I get triggered when I see the birth history. We had birth trauma and- That is very well-documented. There's no reason any professional needs to send that home. For Carter, he's very severely affected, and he's very discrepant from his peers. And so when I get questionnaires about developmental milestones and when it's well-documented what his skills are, there's no need. There's no need to send a form home where I'm going to say, no to everything, when there's other sources mm-hmm. of data that are going to inform that. But I think as professionals, you get so busy and you have your tools and you have to get this evaluation done or you have to get this IEP written. So, oh, this child has a developmental disability. I'm going to send home these questionnaires, these tools for the parent, and you're just trying to get stuff done. And then that has this major effect on the parent when they get these. I mean, I remember opening it up last year it was Carter's first reevaluation and I bawled seeing an ABAS. And that's a tool that I've sent home to so many parents because I literally had to say no to every single item. It was dumb. That doesn't help build his skills in school. There was no information that that team got from me filling this form out. You know, I mean that's a very specific example, but I just think, you know, the, the bigger idea is that like let's just put a little bit more thought and time and effort into that understanding piece and diving a little bit deeper to understand a little bit more about that family's background so I can be a sensitive practitioner so I can ask the right questions and not trigger these families in a way that's gonna shut them down. Does
1: that make sense? Yeah, yeah, totally. I think that is so, so true. And I think it all comes down to like seeing the human part of it, like just being like, this family's not just a work case. What do you call that, a case?
0: Yeah, I mean, another case. Case management, you have so many kids on your roster or your Mm. caseload. You have to have these evaluations or these IEPs written by this Mm. timeline, you know, and by this date. And in order to do that, I have to ask these questions. And so I just Mm. get this mode of getting it done, right? And Mm. this to use to answer these questions. So I'm just going to send these tools home. You know, I just think that's one thing I wish I would have done better. Because one of the things that you're supposed to do as a professional is a file review. And really reading deeply through the file, there's a lot of information, especially if kids are in the system for a long time, you can get so much background information and get really good information about some of those things that like, you're required by law. You have to write a good report. You have to do the background check. And I think a lot of people are trained, well, you need to hear it from the parent. You know, you need to hear it from the source. And for me, maybe some parents like to tell their story over and over. I don't.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: For me, I, it makes me feel like you're lazy you didn't read his file, you didn't make the effort to go through all of the other evaluations that he's had, do your homework. And then I'm happy Mm -hmm. to answer clarifying questions, or talk more deeply about, you know, an aspect, but you don't need to trigger me, like, you don't need to go through and ask me to retell you my birth trauma. Like, how does that help his IEP goal? Like, it just doesn't. Yeah, just being a little bit more thoughtful about the way that you approach the work that you're doing, and trying to answer those questions. Because at the end of the day, it's about outcomes for kids. It's about how are we going to make these kids the best version of who they are, their authentic selves, disability aside, what are they like? What are their strengths and how do we build upon those and how do we create services around that so that way they can thrive? And that's what it's about. So like some of these questions and some of these questionnaires that are the state requires you to send home or whatever, it's so triggering to families that that becomes for me, especially like the focus. And then I shut down and we can't get to the good part. We can't get to all the things that Carter can do and the goals I have for him. And my ideas about the services that would best suit him, you know, because you're spending so much time kind of in the spider or flight mode. I think the outcome, like you spoke about in the beginning of this conversation, it just, it, you don't even get there because there's all of these other barriers that come up that shut parents down, you know, and then we get defensive and then the professionals get defensive. And, you know, you've been in those meetings where the energy just shifts and all of a sudden it feels like a me versus them. And it should never feel that way. Like effective IEP meetings should always feel good for everybody working together. So,
1: Yeah. I feel like the knowledge that it's really difficult for us as parents and that a lot of times there is trauma. I just feel like That's such a game changer to keep that in mind and to be aware of that. I'm like, if they understand that, that's going to improve outcomes and, you know, our relationships and stuff. I think it's just going to make everything so much better because like you say, like then it's like, well, I'm not just going to send home a questionnaire where they have to relive everything and where they have to just check all the no boxes and things like that. Like if you're like, oh, no, wait, this is probably traumatic or triggering for them. And so... I'm going to think of a different way to do this, or I'm just going to get the information I need from actually like looking through the file more intently or, you know, things like that. You know, you also hit on a really important part where it's like focusing on the deficiencies and basically what it feels like, I think for a lot of us is like, how can we make this child less disabled or, you know, how can we make them like this other typical non-disabled kid? And I think as a parent, hopefully a lot of us will come to the point where we accept our child's disability to some right. degree right and we're like we love our child how they are how can we help them reach their unique potential right how, not how can we make them more like their non-disabled sibling how can we help them be the best version of themselves the happiest version of themselves and so focusing on the deficiencies and like well what can they not do is less helpful with that exactly and i will be the first to admit there is ableism In our system.
0: There's ableism in the medical system. I mean, truly the way professionals are trained, you don't realize it. It's not like nobody wants to be an ableist, right? Nobody wants to have those viewpoints. But if we're gonna really make progress, we need to be honest with ourselves and be reflective. And that's something as a parent that I've had to unpack because here's the thing: medical model is often what professionals are trained in and it's this deficit model this discrepancy Mm -hmm. where is your child how discrepant are they from this neurotypical development and what can we do to bridge the gap because neurotypical development is the standard and we need to get this child to that standard instead of just accepting who that child is their authentic selves and of course like i like to say i have realistic hope realistic hope is Accepting the limits while striving to push them at the same time, you know, and that's been something that I think over time, I'm getting to this point where I'm, instead of grieving the child that I lost, right, like that I thought I was going to have, I have really becoming coming into this place of accepting who he is and celebrating that. And I think if professionals could just shift their thinking a little bit, you know, and unpack a little bit of that ableist training that is just so embedded within the system. I really think that kids would be served so much better, you know, and so thinking about what are their strengths, what is realistic for them, you know, and still having high expectations, but accepting that there's going to be limits, like we're not going to be a neurotypical learner. And that's okay. But this child still has skills, even somebody as severely affected as Carter. I mean, we are working on eye gaze communication. You know, he's working on assisting and transfers. There's a lot of functional goals within his IEP. And a lot of it's really hard. And he may or may not attain those goals. But man, it's so powerful to see educators put services in place to help him be the best version of himself and just accept that and be okay with that. And so I think You know, if professionals could get out of this deficit discrepancy kind of model and really celebrate more neurodiversity, you know, I don't think I had enough training as a professional, even in special education in neurodiversity. And what does that mean? And how can we help kids be their authentic selves and help parents accept that and be okay and celebrate that? Because I think because of this ableist system that we all are kind of a part of, parents feel like they're failures because my kid's not doing this goal. My kid's never going to read my kid. It's never going. Carter's never going to eat by mouth. That was a big part of my grief. I felt like such a failure for so long, but it's okay. He doesn't need to eat by mouth to grow. We have a feeding tube. Like I've moved on from that, you know, and just giving parents permission to let go and focusing on all of the great things their child can do. You know, I think that's really, really powerful. And until we just really confront the ableism that is so embedded within the training and the systems that we rely upon, I don't think we're going to get to that point, you know, and that's what I would really love to see professionals do with some really like deep reflective practice about, you know, maybe their own views about disability.
1: Yeah. Because like you said, I think that as parents, you know, we are sort of victim to that type of training, the medical model where it's like, a bit ableist of like, okay, how can we get this child to just be as non-disabled as possible? And you know, we're going to try to fit them in this mold. And what are they not doing? Since we are so integrated into like, you know, the medical world and helping our child live and then in the educational system and helping them get the services they need, like we are hearing these different themes that are reoccurring, like, okay, like, well, I guess I'm a failure because my son will never eat by mouth or, you know, things like that. And so, you know, as parents, like, I think it's also doing us a favor when an educational professional is, hey, what does he do? What does he love instead of what are all the things he's not doing? And one thing that as a parent, and I'm sure this is the case for you as well, like one thing that's been really powerful is to listen to disabled voices, because I think that's really where a lot of that ableism gets dismantled or put into question of like, okay, how do you define quality of life? And, you know, is it bad that he's never going to eat by mouth? Is that bad? Or is it actually just neutral? And as a parent, I've learned so much. And I feel like I'm so much better equipped to be a good parent for my son with his disabilities and help him really love and accept himself and have these realistic hopes where you can be like, he's never going to like do these certain milestones, but we're going to push the limit on what he can do and help him still strive, right? We're not just giving up. Exactly. But I I mean, I think there'd be a lot to learn by including disabled adults' perspectives in, you know, the educational training or like as a professional, right? Being like, oh, wow, look at this ableism, right? Like, because I'm not even sure that everyone listening even knows what that is, right? Where that's a prejudice against disabled people. I'm not a special
0: education professional. I mean, I had a career for a good 10 years. And even before that, I was doing, obviously, a lot of pre-service training with a graduate program. I never once heard the term ableism. Most of my information, in fact, all of my information came from other professionals of neurotypical learners. I mean, it was that medical model, at least in my experience. I don't ever recall hearing from parents of children with disabilities and like you said, the trauma-informed care. I never heard anything from disabled adults or that community. I mean, there were there's so much power in listening to the community that you're serving. You know, if you want to be an effective practitioner Listen to the people that you're serving and they're going to help you understand how to be the best.
1: And I think like another thing that's like so awesome about listening to disabled adults is even just like learning about like terminology that they prefer and respecting that. So like something that when my son was born, I know I was like, I'm a special needs mom and special needs. He's a special needs child, whatever but just realizing that like that term is not preferred by, you know, the disabled community. And so then it makes you look, okay. So then special education, right? Like the whole name of it is a little bit cringy as parents and as, as disabled people, because you're like, well, that's not really the preferred term. And so I know you and I have talked about like, Oh, you know, what we could call it instead, but. Well, and I, cause I think I'm learning this. I did not think mm-hmm. twice
0: about the term special education, that's what it was. It was for kids that had disabilities that were entitled to receive services. It didn't even occur to me that that was a term that disabled adults don't prefer. And I think they're using the word disabled. I was also trained heavy in person first language. My staff, I gave them articles about person first language. You know, I still kinda, I think because of how I was trained, that's how I will say, I will say Carter's a child with a disability instead of a disabled child. And I thought anyone who's used the word, they're autistic, you know, they're disabled was bad. That was the training that I received. And that's not the case. That's not what disabled adults are saying. And I think the more you can just say, yeah, he's disabled. It takes away the stigma. It takes away the the negativity. And so I think special education, it was a term that was used to lessen the blow, so to speak, of using the word disability. So why can't we just say it's disability education or I don't know what the word would be but that is something as a professional that I got zero training on it was always people first people first people first you know which I still think some people prefer but not everybody prefers that so I think acknowledging that and I think if my former staff are listening they're going to be like what because I would call them out if they didn't (laughs) you know because I was so conscious about not offending parents but jokes on me because some parents want to use the word disability or autistic or whatever it is, you know? And so I think just listening to the community that you're serving will help, you know, even just what words to use, you know, so people can feel like they're seen and heard.
1: Yeah. And again, like the cheat sheet book, Demystifying Disability by Emily Ladat, like that book, I feel like is such a great way to, if you're just like, wait, what? Like if your mind was just blown by hearing that, like, I feel like that's a really great resource where, you know a lot of different perspectives come together from disabled people but
0: that idea is something i've just literally started unpacking in the last 2 years <laughs> and mm-hmm. i'm hitting that right now i didn't think twice about special education special needs you know i would have never said the word is disabled like i would have never said that 2 years ago because i thought that was a bad thing to say it's not bad he is he's disabled and i love him and i'm proud of him and it's just one part of who he is you know and so i think it's okay to say those words and making sure that we're listening to, again, that population that we're trying to serve. And I think for me, so I'm type A and I like to be the best. I'm a perfectionist and that means following the rules. And so for me, when I was practicing, and this is just me being reflective and just honest about it, I wanted to be the best. And if my boss said, this is what the standard practice was, and this is what best practice is, I'm going to strive for that. So if that means I'm going to use all these tools and I'm going to do it this way, then that's what I'm going to do because I want to be the best and I want to follow the rules and be good at my job. But it's not about being good at your job. It's about helping families and it's about servicing families and it's about helping kids reach their goals and being the best version of themselves. And so I think if that can be your bar that you're striving for and trying to educate yourself from the community that you're serving that's going to be the best training that you'll ever receive because now that I'm a parent, I'm not kidding you, I have learned more from parents and the disabled adult community than I have from any medical or special education professional and that's true. <laughs> All the things wow. I had to help Carter has 100% been from parents and other families and not necessarily from the professionals that we rely upon because we live it because it's life. It's not a job, it's not an interesting case, it's not a client. You know, it's not this clinical model. We have a family, we have a little boy, we have other kids, we are doing life, we're going into the community, we're trying to celebrate holidays and vacations, like we're trying to do all the things in life, you know. And so that's for me like what it comes down to is like what skills for Carter are gonna help him enjoy and have quality of life. And I need educators on his team to think that way.
1: Yeah, like so much more holistic. Like I just picture like how powerful that can be. And I do want to make it clear, like, obviously, we're not trying to sit here and be like, don't do this and do this. And you guys are the worst. And no, I don't want to, like, you know, facilitate any kind of like us against you. But it really is. It's like I love how you said that, like, listen to the people you're serving because it's just going to make you that much better at your job. I think that's what it really comes down to. And kind of the point of this episode is to speak to that of like, hey, here's our perspective. We really feel like this is a valuable perspective to listen to. And, you know, even beyond this episode, like, I think there are a lot of ways that you can listen to the parent perspective and kind of educate yourself and, you know, disabled adults. And I mean, for me personally, I mean, like, that's one of the awesome things about this podcast is that you can be a fly on the wall and hear what it's like for us as parents and kind of be like, wow, I can see why that was so traumatic. And man, that makes so much more sense now why this Woman in this IEP meeting was just so defensive. Like, I'm guessing it was because of, you know, this thing and, and just going and reading books or you know, just listening to disabled adults. There's one book in particular that I love to recommend by Emily Ladow, who is a disabled activist. It's called Demystifying Disability. And I'll put a link in the show notes. But just things like that, where it's just like the basics of disability from the perspective of disabled people and their parents, right? Like, I think that integrating that and just having that layer on top of your training would just make you just like such a dynamite educator and advocate and professional
0: it's only going to make you better because at the end of the day we all want to work together to achieve the same outcome and that's helping kids with disabilities be the best version of themselves right and learn and grow and develop and i just think that the more reflective and open-minded and honest with ourselves as practitioners the more effective that we can be to help the families that we're here to help. And that's what I would totally do differently. And that's why I'm coming on here because I will be the first to admit I had ableist views. And I think, you know, another thing for practitioners, again, if I'm being honest, you hear this sometimes where it's like, almost like you want to come in and be like a savior, you know, and I don't think I was that extreme, but you know, there are those people that go into professionals because they want to help others and they want to, look, I'm helping the poor disabled Community or those poor disabled kids. And I'm just saying that because I don't think that that's what professionals truly think and feel, but that mindset is very subtle. But there are those subtleties ingrained in how we interact and how we think and how we service and how we write goals. And I feel that as the parent, you know. And so I just think like really just being honest with yourself and, like I said, educating yourself so that way we can just be better, you know, be better humans and. Help the families that they're here to help. One thing that I wanted to also say, you know, is professionals. One thing too is just this whole idea of inclusion, and I know that could be like a whole podcast episode in and of itself. But you know, it's like it's like it's not Carter's job to educate the classmates. You know, I think sometimes I just went into Carter's class actually a couple of weeks ago because there was a little girl and she was terrified when the nurses gave him a medication in his G 2 button she thought it was a needle. She thought it was hurting. And so I was like, Oh, sweetheart, like, no. So I went in and I read a book called No Such Thing As Normal. And they're first graders. And it was so powerful, because it was authentic. We came in, we had lots of questions about Carter, but also just how we're similar and how we're different and how we can interact with Carter and things like that. And I think those kinds of things are so powerful and authentic. But I think sometimes and I've seen it just because of the experience I have as a professional is like, you say that you're including kids. Well, there's a kid in the wheelchair just because he's physically in the room. It's not his job to educate other kids on wheelchairs, you know, or feeding tubes, or like that's a lot of pressure for any six year old. It's the adult's job to help other kids understand through books and play and in those authentic interactions. Cause I think sometimes that inclusion piece like, what does it really mean to be included? And what does that look like for Carter to meaningfully access? gen ed curriculum alongside his peers. And I think that's one thing I've been just like hypersensitive to as he has started school is just, you know, how the professionals are including him and how they're thinking about that. And right or wrong, I just think sometimes kids with disabilities, it's like they're not there to help other kids have empathy, right? Like it's not their job to teach them empathy. I think that can be an authentic thing that occurs from authentic meaningful interactions and connections but it's also it's not disabled kids and parents job that's not the purpose of them having a disability is to educate others on how to be kind. does that
1: make sense yeah like they're not like the token disabled person in the classroom to teach I think that's what I'm kindness you know, and
0: I'll be honest, like as a professional, I did see that, you know, or like, oh, look at these neurotypical learners are being such good kids because they included that kid in the wheelchair. But it's like, do they have the same interests? You know, do they even know how to communicate with that child? Like, was that an authentic interaction? And, and sometimes it is, and it's beautiful and it's amazing. And that's all you ever want as a parent. But like when those things are forced or you think about the kids that have Down syndrome that like they're prom king because they have a disability. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it may not be because of their disability, right? But I've heard or seen stories, you know, it's like, don't just vote my child popular because they have a disability. I want it to be because of who they are, you
1: know? Yeah. That's been something too that I've learned from listening to disabled adults is like, don't make us like this token disabled person and like applaud, like overly like, wow, you are such a nice person because you just spoke to a disabled person. Exactly. So picture for a second how that would feel. Like, We're applauding that you just spoke to someone who's disabled. Like, it's a very subtle version of ableism because it feels all noble and it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. And you're like, oh, we're such good people because we're including him. But it's like, well, he's a human and he has stuff to offer you and you have stuff to offer him. And like to let it be, like you said, an authentic relationship and interacting in a way that's like just natural and normal and not like, wow, we're going to like give you all these gold stars because you just interacted with a disabled person. Because what's that saying about disabled people?
0: Or like, we're going to put this child in PE and art or music, and we're going to say they're included 25% of the time. But like, if there's not something authentic for them, you I know, mean, a lot of times that's why accommodations and modifications are in place, right? To level that playing field, to give kids with disabilities the same opportunity to participate in the same activities alongside their peers. And I have seen it, Madeline, I've seen it where kids with disabilities, well, we need to start pushing them in. So we're just going to add them to music or we're going to add them to PE and then Carter's sitting in his wheelchair in PE while the kids are running around playing tech. That did not happen. I'm just using that as an example mm-hmm. of a non-example. Like just because he's physically in the same space doesn't make his LRE, so least restrictive environment, any less restrictive, right? Like unless there's things that are in there that where he's meaningfully participating, that doesn't necessarily mean he's actually being included. Does that make sense? I don't know. I I just totally if I'm honest, like I think I took some pride in I did a lot of direct service with kids. I love working with kids with autism. I loved it. I miss it actually. I miss it so much. But you know, I came home and I felt proud. Like, oh look what I do for a job. I work with kids with disabilities. But did I really do the work to like really understand what the family had gone through or Not to the degree that I wish that people would do for me, you know, now. And so I'm just being honest. Like, I think there was a little bit of that for me and like in motivating me to enter the field because I like helping people. And I think people who help people with disabilities get a gold star, like you said, you know. And so I think that that's a very subtle ableist thing that is embedded in our society. And so I just think just like admitting it, right, and confronting it and like doing your homework, reflecting on those things and just being really thoughtful And open-minded about the services that we're implementing, whether it be inclusion or an IEP goal or an accommodation, like let's just really be thoughtful and open-minded and have an open dialogue with parents and start from a place of understanding versus, I don't know, when we come in and say, this is like you said, this is what I want. This is what I want. Who's going to win? It's not about Mm -hmm. about coming together and working together to do what's best for the child.
1: Yeah. And I think like if anyone's listening right now and thinking like, oh, that sounds really uncomfortable. Like even right now, like hearing things like, oh, shoot, I do that. I don't want to lean into that and go and like learn more about different things about ableism and educating yourself. And like, I mean, that can feel really uncomfortable because what it's doing is it's opening our eyes to things, belief systems or whatever that maybe aren't the greatest. And I will say that I have a lot of empathy for that because as parents, like we, I mean, I don't want to speak for you, Tiffany, but like hands down, I will admit full out, like I do not feel like I can hundred percent say I am not at all ableist, right? Like I understand the more I learn about it, the more I'm like, wow, that's an ableist idea that I had, or like this thing that I did, like that's pretty ableist that I did that, or, you know, it just opens your eyes to these things and that can feel really uncomfortable But at the same time, I think it's really essential to lean into that because the more that we learn about it, even though we see more in ourselves that we might need to fix or like, okay, well, that's good for me to recognize and I want to work on that, you still are making progress, even though it makes you so much more aware of all the ways that you need to improve or things that you can fix. I just think we're all in this together and there is so much learning and unlearning that as parents we do.
0: It's okay just to be honest with yourself because that's how the systems, that's how the training, I mean, as a I have mm. I do a lot of deprogramming because I didn't even realize how much subtle ableism in the way I think about discrepancy and goals and what's realistic and I don't know, I just you know the standard that I even had for Carter, like you know, if he wasn't gonna meet these things by a certain time, I had failed or you have to do all of these things to help him sit up or walk because why? Because if he doesn't walk, he's less of a person new. I'm really coming into that now. A lot of my grief that I had was because of those ableist ideas that I didn't even realize that I was thinking that way, you know? And so that's why it's, I think it's just important to just really take a step back and be honest with yourself about that. The other thing I would say to parents too, like, and obviously it's to your comfort. I think that anytime there's an organic opportunity to share your perspective of what you're thinking. Like, so if you have an experience that didn't feel good, for example, when Carter did his reevaluation, the school psychologist sent me, like I told you that adaptive measure and it was awful. It was awful. It was the five to 21. So he was already on the low end of it. And I had to say no to every single thing. There was like a whole section about like social and it's like, but it was all because the tool was based on an able-bodied person. So much of the questions were geared towards like fine and gross motor things that it's like, well, this isn't even relevant. And so I just shared that with the school psychologist and just said, hey, you know, I completed this. I want you to know it was really painful. It was really triggering. And I don't think you learned a single helpful thing about Carter. And so I hope that going into the meeting, we can really focus on the strengths and build upon them. Like that's what I want the focus of the meeting to be. And her response to me <laughs> was, well, that's a tool that's required for all for year re- evaluations period. Like, there was no empathy. There was no acknowledgement. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about that. But his teacher was on the email and she said, I'm so glad you shared that. Your words are so powerful. Thank you for telling me that. And I just think I tried, right? And maybe next time she gives that tool or the way that she interacts with parents, maybe it will make her think twice. But I think... As professionals, we don't know, like we're kind of in our own little bubble. Like I was so ignorant to some of the ideas that I even had as a practitioner. So unless parents are willing to share that feedback, you know, in an authentic way, I mean, it takes courage to do that and it's not comfortable, but I think if it's on your heart to share your perspective with those professionals in those moments, I think it can really, really help just make that relationship stronger and build that empathy in a way that will help your relationship be more effective moving forward.
1: Yeah, I love that idea. I think that's so important. Yeah, and I think, like, along with that, I think it's important to kind of question, too, a lot of these policies where, like, oh, well, I just need to send it home, and that's just how it is, and you need to deal with it. Like, I think being more open-minded to be, like, okay, like, if we are truly a team and we're working together as educator, professional, as a parent, working together for the greater good of, like, this child – then we need to be open to questioning things right and to be like oh should we send home those things or why are we just saying a hard no to having a nurse in school you know things like that where it's like if we really do want the best outcome and you know and we understand too like there are limits you know we know there are budget things and but like i think like not saying no just because there's a rule in place and you're not willing to kind of push up against that with us can feel frustrating
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of scenarios, you know, and I have friends that are still in the field and working. And so I've, you know, I always pick their brains from time to time. And I think it's just, you know, well, this is how we do things we don't do that because it's a liability reason. And then like that's just the end, you know, but sometimes things shift and evolve. And we kind of have to do that too. Like, for example, COVID obviously changed a lot of things and staffing shortages are so real. I mean, everybody feels the effects of that. So as an administrator, I can totally appreciate, like, what do you want to do? wave my magic wand and make a nurse appear for your child or like, make a para up here, you know, it's like staffing shortages are so hard, right. But as, at the mm-hmm. same time, I'm going to stay in in my lane as a parent. And I'm telling you, this is what my child needs. So how can we work together to come up with some sort of creative solution to make that happen? And I think just taking a step back and just being like, okay, why, you know, why, why is this a hard and fast rule? And does this still need to be a hard and fast rule? You know, what other resources are out there that we can make this happen for this kid? Because I think, you know, that staffing in schools is just such a A big one for parents. You know, a lot of kids need, whether it be a nurse or a paraprofessional, and those people are really hard to find. And so I think if we're really thinking about what's best for this child in order to learn and access FAPE, what does that look like? Does it really mean saying no? If there's a nurse available from a private agency that can come with the child to school, and support that child's medical needs so that way they can learn. And Carter is nurses go to school with him. And so that was something that not very many districts do in Minnesota. And it's been such a positive thing, you know, and I've talked a lot about this and I've talked about this with my friends and now the people in leadership roles are a little bit more open-minded, you know, and that's how change happens, you know? So I think just, again, it goes back to just being open-minded and thinking critically about the why behind something. I've had friends where it's like, if their nurse can't come to school with their child, they lose their nurse. The nurse needs to work eight to 12 hours a day. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's like, if this school is saying no, just because that's what we do, and we're just not open to that. And they don't even have anybody else that can provide the cares for the child. And now this family is going to lose their nurse. Like who wins in that situation? Nobody wins. And so luckily in that scenario, we were able to kind of have good conversation and talk it through, and we were able to come up with a compromise. But I just think There's a lot of hard and fast rules in place. One thing, you know, going back, sorry, now my mind's going on a tangent here, but thinking back to that question too, because one of the things that is required every time you write an IEP or an evaluation is just background information. And I think for me, instead of just sending home the standard battery of questionnaires, I might just call the parent and say, hey, I need to summarize the background, you know, the birth and developmental history. What would be the best way to do that? for me, I would say, read his file, read his medical history. I provided so much information. I've written this up. I've written my own summaries, read that, and then ask me questions. Some parents might just want to tell you, you know, and so like my preference isn't going to be the same as everybody else's. But I think, again, just considering like, Hey, there's a lot of information to cover. Hey, parent, what would be the best data sources to answer these questions that we're required to answer. Does that make sense? You know, and I never did that. I just did what I always did. And I sent home the questionnaires regardless of who it was. And just, again, giving a little bit more thought and time, I think will just, yeah, make that relationship with the parent just even better.
1: Yeah. I think like even whether we want to admit it or not, we're all kind of looking like, what's in it for me, right? Because I think that's just a very natural part of being human. Like, you want some kind of benefit whether it's like feeling good about it or more obvious ways but i think in that situation something as a professional you will get out of that is that this parent is going to be easier to work with right like you talk about these you know labeled difficult families if we feel like you're on our side and we're like wow she just asked me what would be more comfortable for me as far as sharing like the background on his medical history She's on my team. You know, she cares about me. She can kind of see where I'm coming from on this. And I think that that like as a professional that's going to make your job so much more pleasant and so much easier and it's going to feel so fulfilling to be like I'm on their team and I advocated for them and I helped explain, you know, when there were things we couldn't do. We worked on this together. I think that's going to be such a fulfilling thing and I think Thinking of it from that perspective too, of like, this is going to not only benefit the child, this is going to feel more compassionate for the parents and it's going to be better for me too. Like, this is going to be just a better all around way to approach this in a more of a human way of more of an empathetic way of like looking at it from, this is not just another case that I'm working on.
0: Exactly. And if someone said to me,
1: Hey, I did a
0: file review. I, it sounds like you've had, you know, there was a pre-traumatic birth. I have to get this information. How would you like me to gather that data, you know, so I can write this report? Like, oh my gosh, I mean, it, that takes 10 seconds to say to me. And if someone said that it would go such a long way. Like, I know I can tell you if I have an admission member, Carter, or I'm starting a new service provider and someone read his file, like they actually read the file it just, it means so much. And immediately my defenses are down. I'm excited to talk to them. I'm probably even willing to share all the trauma with them because I feel so like they actually care because they took the time to read a little bit before. And it doesn't take that much effort, you know, and I'll be honest as a practitioner, I'd like to say that I did that every time, but I didn't, I know that I didn't. So I just think those things, I didn't realize what an impact that kind of stuff can have on families and how much more effective and better it can be to work together. If you just take a little bit of time. The other thing that I really like, Carter's teacher always says to me, especially when I'm in like mama bear mode, because I will get very fierce and I (laughs) do, but I definitely do. And I love her so much. And she'll say, Tiffany, I hear you. She doesn't say, I understand because that's been a trigger thing for me too. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but when I have medical professionals or if I'm inpatient and I'm hospitalizations are a big thing for me. And if I have someone say to me, I understand, I understand. I want to be like, do you understand? Have you gone through what I've gone through? You know, has your kid ever been on hospice and you've been told just let your kid start? I mean, like I go, I mean, like, that's where my mind goes. I just want to go. Like, don't say you understand, but Carter's teacher always says, I hear you. And I know she does, you know, she can't change anything, but she says, I hear you. And like, that's really, honestly, it sounds so cliche, but half the battle is parents just want to be heard because right or wrong, we're used to having to scream and yell and fight or say the same thing over and over to be heard. And I didn't understand that as a professional, like how much energy parents have to expend just to even just be heard. And it's true. Like that is a thing. I mean, at least in my experience, I mean, it's exhausting.
1: Yeah. What I'm hearing from you too, is like, we want to be seen. Yeah. And I think that's what really comes down to is we want to feel seen. And so like things like that, call of like how do you want me to collect this information or saying the words I hear you like we're going to be like okay good like I can stop screaming about this and we can tell too right like if you just say I hear you and we can tell you're not listening or you don't know the background or we are just another case like we can tell that too so it has to be authentic but I think like anyone we want to be seen and as a parent too you kind of touched on this but as a parent like When you feel that trauma response and you feel defensive and you feel yourself going into mama bear mode and you're like aware, like, wait, this reaction I'm having is not necessarily like appropriate for what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, this is from a trauma, a trauma response. And like, as parents, we don't like that feeling. You know, like when I feel myself like enter the meeting when it's like on Zoom, that's how we've been doing our IEPs and things like that. But like enter the meeting and I feel myself like, like, here we go. I need to win. And I'm like why am I feeling this? I do not want to go in here guns blazing. Like I don't, I don't want to feel this way. And so, you know, again, this is just like a mutually beneficial thing. And I think as a professional, you have so much power in that because, you know, you probably aren't having trauma responses as you're talking about these things or entering this meeting. And so you can speak from a more logical standpoint of being like, okay, I hear you. Or like, wow, that sounds hard. Or just having those little, those little moments of like empathy or compassion or like, showing or illustrating in some way like we're on your side like we're we're working on this together and don't
0: say oh that sounds hard or that must be frustrating if it's just lip service because we can tell like you take the phone it's delivery if you don't mean it you have the ability to help me put my dukes all the way up or all the way down and I (laughs) can tell by your sincerity and your word choice you know it matters it really matters I can feel that or it will just make me emotional, like I go kind of two different ways, you know, I can just really gear up and just feel very defensive and my dukes are up and I'm gonna just advocate and mama bear, or I'm gonna shut down so much where I'm like crying. And I am so embarrassed by my emotion because I know that everyone else is in a logical place. But like you said, I'm having a trauma response. And I'm so hurt by what you just asked me, because I can tell that either you don't mean what you say, or you have done no homework you don't understand anything about my, you know, you go, you kind of spiral out of there. And then I'm just so frustrated that I cry. And now I can't Mm. function. Now I can't participate in this meeting as an effective participant. And this sounds so cliche too. I wanted to mention this too. I forgot to write this down. Parents are the experts. Okay. I don't know how many times I was trained in a collaborative consultation model, right? So that means you work with the parents are the expert in their child. You're the expert in instruction. And together, you come together and you make this glorious IEP. I'm telling you, just from my own professional experience, there were times when I did not give parents the credit they deserve. Because somebody, another colleague might have said, oh, you know, look out for this one. This is the difficult parent or this parent is really challenging to work with, or ask this really crazy question, you know, how could they even ask for such a thing? And all of a sudden, you start forming these thoughts and opinions about parents. And I just, I did not give parents the credit that they deserve. Parents really are the experts in their kids, you guys, we really, really do. We know all of the things about them. And it's really up to the professional to ask the right questions in the right way. So that way we can have a true picture of who this kid is, what their skills are and how we can help them grow. But I don't think I really gave parents the credit that they deserve. And it's true, parents are the experts in all the things. So listen to them before you just jump to the, they're difficult, they're challenging, they don't know what they're talking about. Because that's the other thing too, like parents don't get education in the IEP system. I'm so thankful for my background because the school system, it's very different to navigate than the medical world. It's very different to navigate than the county services. These services, it's like they work in silos. And I was trained, you know, best practice would say we should have wraparound services where all of these entities are coming together and they're working together and they're wrapping around the family and the child. In my experience, It feels like there's these three different silos and I'm pulling strings so hard to get them to come together and I'm trying to tie the best knot and it still falls apart, right? Like I feel like I'm the glue that's trying to bring it all together. And I did not understand that, you know, and parents don't like the medical world and the rules and the norms. It's different than county services. It's different than special education rules and norms. So think about the fact that the parents are trying to navigate all of these systems and they don't get training. They don't know IEP rules and federal and state laws. And so they might ask what you think is a really, forgive my word, but dumb question. You know, they, you, they might ask a question that as a professional, you're like rolling your eyes, like, oh my gosh, they don't know what they're talking about. We don't get training. We don't, we don't get any support. It's a crash course, right? Like you just mm-hmm. you walk in, you do the IEP meeting and you learn through your experience. And so I think professionals don't realize how much influence and impact they can have on parents to help them learn the rules and the norms and make it a positive thing
1: yes like teach us because that's going to give us so much more like if like you say that you know we are the experts on our children and so if you are willing to explain things in a way, it's not patronizing, but like yeah. patiently, like explaining different things that, you know, and, and as parents listening, ask, right? Like, that's one thing I've really had to learn is like ask the dumb questions because how else are we going to learn these things? So, if we're willing to ask those questions and you're willing to explain those things to us, I mean, we're going to be a really awesome asset to our child if we, you know, we are able to combine those things and then we work together with you as professionals and it's just all going to be a nice little happy family. But I think like you say, like being willing to educate the parents is so important because we have no clue what we're doing, right? And of course that depends on where we are, like how old our child is and you know where we are in the system. But like when we start these out, we have no reason to know this stuff. Yep. And honestly, like for me, it was quite triggering. Kimball's first eligibility meeting was very triggering to me to what it felt like in the NICU. Yep. So I was like, well, crap. And I have to like fight for these things and I have no idea what anyone's talking about. And they're using these acronyms. I don't know what they mean. And so recognizing that like, There's a huge learning curve and we're trying to figure this out. And, you know, the more we know, the more powerful assets we are to the team and we really can work together to have a really awesome situation for the child.
0: Exactly. Parents too, like teachers are so overwhelmed. They are trying to do their best. I think everyone needs to remember that everyone's trying to do their best, right? And the teachers are trying to learn too, because the thing about special education law, it changes all the time. And the teachers are the ones that are like in the trenches, so to speak. They're on the ground, they're with the kids, they're doing all the things. But sometimes that information, it's trickled down, right? And so sometimes there can be discrepancies and inconsistencies between districts or even within districts, you know, what rules are being shared. And it's not necessarily because the teacher's trying to pull one over, you know, sometimes there's just a lot of lot of change and it's hard to keep up with. And I think as special education teachers, like, I just want to make sure that they get the credit that they deserve because they are amazing humans. I have seen firsthand how incredible it can feel to have an educator who sees your kid, who wants to help your kid, who wants to work with your child. It's been such a positive experience for Carter to be in school because of the incredible team that he has. And so I just think it's important for parents. Like everybody just needs to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Parents are doing their best with the tools that they have. And they're trying to channel their trauma <laughs> as best, you know, in these meetings, you know, and I think as parents, we need to recognize that teachers are doing their very best to they're under a lot of pressure to follow the rules and to be compliant and to, practice the way that they've been trained and it's not always their fault that they might have said something ableist or they've sent the wrong questionnaire because they're just trying to do what their supervisors are telling them to do you know and maybe this district didn't get the latest from mde that day minnesota department of ed you know and so sometimes i think it's just important if we just remember everyone's trying to do the best with the information that they have and i really do believe that as cliche as that sounds you know and so i think that can just kind of again everybody can take a step back and put their defensives down so we can all like just come together and work more effectively.
1: Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. I think that's like a, a great theme to really have to like coming forward from this episode is like giving each other the benefit of a doubt and really genuinely trying to work as a team. I love that so much. Grace can go along. Grace, grace for you, for for yourself, for other people. Yep. And <laughs>
0: oh. Parents bring cookies, like bring cookies, bring snacks, right? thank you cards to your teacher. I know that sounds so silly and I'm sure so many people probably do this. You could probably even ask a question and get a ton of really amazing ideas. But I think also as parents, your teachers are doing so much. Your IEP teams really want to help your child. And if you have a team and you see people that are doing the awesome, like let them know how awesome they are, you know? And I think seriously bringing food to IEP meetings because sometimes they can feel really tense and really uncomfortable and I get nervous even with my background, I get nervous. So anything that you can do to make it a more comfortable situation, you know, and food, coffee, you know, all of those things can go a long way. So yeah, but just make sure that as a parents, if you have a good team, let you're letting them know how amazing they are and why. You know, I think it's just really important to show that.
1: Yeah, because it's all a big deal. It's all a really big deal to you know each family. It is make or break. You know that can make a huge difference in just your life, right? Of like, oh, I feel like this team hears me and I love them and I appreciate them or, you know, the opposite. Just, oh, we're really butting heads and this is really stressful. Like these are really big deals to us. Well, thank you so much, Tiffany. I feel like (laughs) we could keep talking for hours about this, but I so appreciate your, like your perspective and that you're willing to share it in such a kind and honest way and- I think we just both hope that this episode really is helpful to people and opens a few eyes to different perspectives. So thank you so much. In the show notes, we have links to connect with Tiffany, me, and Trexo Robotics on social media, as well as websites to learn more. We also have a link in the show notes to a few episodes all about IEPs if you want to do a little more learning there. There are also links to the books that we mentioned in the episode, No Such Thing as Normal, which is a children's book, and Demystifying Disability, which is a book for adults. They're both so good. Go check them out. And don't forget to head to therealifepodcast.com to find materials for sharing this episode with the special education professionals in your life. Also, if you were scratching your head when Tiffany and I talked about avoiding the term special needs, you are in luck. Our episode next week is a conversation with disabled and medically complex adult Hannah Seltzer, known on social media as Feeding Tube Fitness. And we talk all about the term special needs and why we should question our use of it. We're also joined by parent Carrie Harbath, who was a guest on the podcast way back in episodes 10 and 11. Don't miss this dynamite conversation. See you then.